Hello and welcome to Climate Change Unfolding. I'm in COVID-19 lockdown. I'm going to take you back a few weeks to one evening. Um, everyone else in my immediate bubble has gone to bed and I'm not tired yet. What I am tired of is really screens and definitely tired of Twitter and news websites. It's quite early on in the whole um, COVID shenanigans. So I just went outside and I sat outside for a while and, and once I'd taken a moment to stop and breathe and drink, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd also found a bottle of wine. So I was, uh, um, I was hit with the sounds of the tropical nighttime waterside jungle and some of the, um, some of the people who listen, I know, have visited this area where I live before and I know, um, or live here even, and so uh, we'll know what I'm talking about, the insects and the frogs and all sorts of other life going on. It's like a natural bombardment of your eardrums. You know, I live in Uganda on the on the banks of the Nile River. Actually, maybe, I'll, I, given this is an audio program, <laughs> maybe tonight I'll put my mic outside and see if I can record a few seconds just so you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, the sounds took me back all of a sudden to what was close to a couple of years ago now on the Hairy Lemon, the little tropical jungle island camp on the Nile that had stolen my heart when I came on a visit 16 years ago to Uganda and changed the whole course and direction of my life. You know, So long-time listeners will know, I think it was maybe episode 8 where I talked about losing my home, um, a little sort of shack that I built on, these, on the side of this island and you know, a major hydro project submerged it and this you know, it's an amazing tropical paradise and yeah sad it was a sad part of my life for watching my home slowly be submerged and on on this particular night in lockdown I was probably pretty raw from what was going on elsewhere in the world and the collective suffering and but I was really feeling like more than I even I had in in a long time like a real sadness about that amazing jungle and 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 what we lost in, um a few years ago and maybe come to think of it it was also something to do with drinking wine on my own <laughs> that's a little bit bleak that's a little bit bleak too but anyway um I lost myself for a while thinking about the home I used to enjoy the place the people the wildlife and I remember all these channels and islands around it too and I used to teach kayaking there in the eddies which is the calmer parts of the river and and the tropical temperature made it just a perfect place to learn to kayak and while I was um during the time I was at the hairy lemon I realized the calm water parts of the river were changing and I'd noticed this beautiful plant but realized over time it was behaving in a very invasive way taking over like whole areas that I used to teach were now choked up and I couldn't use them anymore and um, and I asked the owner at the time and he went on a like a solid few minute rant about it and it's ultimately it's common water hyacinth it's actually one of the world's most invasive species then I remembered something else much more recently sitting at the bottom of one of my ideas lists <laughs> along with all the other ideas that I have that I haven't actually got to yet there was something that I realized could work and that moment of reflection and sadness and the memory of your ideas taken me on a whole big rabbit hole of action <laughs> climate action to be specific which I'm happy about and it spiraled into a project and you know and and turned into a massive pivot for my team here in uh, in Uganda my businesses and the organizations that I run here so and um, that's what I'm going to talk about today so I'll get to the idea soon but first let me give you a bit of a an updated and refined version of the water hyacinth rant <laughs> I first heard more than a decade ago, maybe 12 years ago or something. And let me tell you all about this mind-blowing plant. 
So water hyacinth is native to South America. It's kind of a floating pod with roots and leaves and a, and a beautiful flower. It's actually it's a really beautiful plant. And in its natural habitat in the Amazon rainforest, as with pretty much everything else in nature, it has its own controls. You know, other species that keep it in check. But elsewhere in the world, it just takes over, especially in warm countries like Uganda, where I live. Um, it was introduced for Rwanda, for beauty, you know, it like a in waterside residences, <laughs> you know. And it took to the environment like you wouldn't believe, and it's found its way naturally down the rivers um, that feed Lake Victoria. And then Lake Victoria is the second largest freshwater lake in the world, and it just went a bit berserk there. And over the last few decades has been making its way down and, and around the Nile too. And, and that's what I've seen and experienced firsthand. You know, this plant, it's hard to get across just how crazy it is. It grows at an incredible rate, one of the fastest growing plants in the world. And the reason it's so rampant is it can reproduce in, in multiple ways. So each little pod can clone itself connected by a kind of tube. And um, I don't know what the technical term for the tube is, but it, there's a like tube that connects the plant and it does that incredibly quickly. And then it also reproduces with the, in a more traditional way with seeds. And, you know, each pod can produce thousands of seeds a year. And those seeds can, can remain viable for up to almost 30 years, so 28 years. So it's super hard to get, get rid of too because you have all these seeds everywhere. Even if you clear it, one seed could find itself and then replicate itself, a million, you know, however many times. And, when, you know, there's one research paper on hyacinth that studied its reproduction said one pod on average in an ideal and growing environment grows 2.7 other pods per week. And the paper also points out, give an ideal environment based on that, you know, and, and no controls. One pod weighing half a kilo could theoretically turn into 28,000 tons a year. <laughs> Uh, this you know they form these like kind of floating mats you know of these pods and um some water hyacinth mats were found to grow in the same study up to five meters a day you know apart from how prolifically it multiplies it's a problem for a number of reasons you know it blocks out sunlight from reaching other aquatic plants and and the riverbed and or the lake bed and other plants just can't compete with the speed of growth and they die off um the decomposition of the hyacinth in the water depletes um, dissolved oxygen in the water which kills fish and decomposing anaerobically also releases methane a lot of it and and methane is a really potent greenhouse gas that's 30 times worse than co2 but that's just a part, tiny part of it you know we water hyacinth <laughs> when you really dig into water hyacinth oh my god this thing you know it especially gathers on the shore side of lakes and river shores and shallows which are really crux areas of the whole ecosystem because that's where all the fish and the frogs and other aquatic species breed and um, as well as things like kingfishers and other birds and land mammals that use the water's edge and so it's terrible for biodiversity has human health impacts too really significant ones the leaves and the uh, and floating water plants make the perfect breeding environment for malaria mosquitoes so wherever it's found there's an increase in malaria and the lack of water movement and the decomposition of matter on the river bottom you know under these huge mats make the perfect environment for, for water snails that carry schistosomiasis <laughs> which is another pretty crappy human disease it, it's not just disease though for humans these clogged up hyacinth mats affect affect water flow and it can take over calm water bodies completely so harbors and fishing villages and docks they get choked up with it making it almost unusable um and boat engine motors get clogged up if it goes into a mat and can get damaged fishing nets you know in some places have to just have machines constantly working to pull this stuff out of the out of the water to keep their dock clear or their harbor clear 
once you know just a few weeks ago once this stuff you know i was really going on this project as if to showcase how spectacular this plant is <laughs> and uh, you know the power went out and not that unusual but a, a, like a friend sent me a whatsapp video of an enormous floating island of hyacinth and um that floated from lake victoria it's flowed through the source of the nile and into the massive hydro project there the uh, nalabali dam and and I, when i mean huge i mean huge like many hectares worth and i put some uh, pictures of it on my website this thing is wild it, it clogged up the turbines of this mega dam and tripped the emergency shutdown which shocked the grid and meant a temporary nationwide blackout <laughs> yeah pretty incredible as if choking ecosystems and um contributing to climate change wasn't enough now this thing is causing na- nationwide blackouts <laughs> But no, there are a couple more of these islands drifting towards the source of Nile. One, one of them's ten acres, <laughs> so large. Some farmers have been farming yams on the on the mats of reeds. <laughs> anyway, actually, I've got some drone shots today. So if you want, if you want a visual, just type in climatechangeunfolding.com/slash/episode twenty one, and I've put a few um, pictures just so because I know sometimes audio just doesn't do it for you. In short, water hyacinth is like, you know. The devil reincarnated. Beautiful, but the devil. Kind of like <laughs> kind of like a Fox News anchor. Beautiful, but actually trying to do as much damage to society as it possibly can in its lifetime. <laughs> just before I jump into the actual idea and what I'm actually working on, I want to give you just a bit more backstory and context about the area. So it's not just the ecosystem of the Nile River and Lake Victoria that's under a bit of pressure here. The surrounding area is also under a lot of environmental pressure. Most of the population cook on simple three rocks, fire in the middle, using firewood, trees, chopping down trees, or or charcoal. And and when you scale that around the number of people that live along the Nile and around this area and the amount of time they spend cooking each day, that's a lot of fuel. It's a real problem and massive degradation on forests, deforestation is rampant. And, and it's not being done sustainably at all. You know, a lot of people are living hand to mouth as subsistence farmers. So, you know, you can't blame people for not thinking of long term, bigger picture environmental degradation, you know, when they have little choice and things like food, medicine, education for the families are their priorities, you know, so it's, it's sort of understandable, but there, there's very little other option. And where the forests are degraded already fuels a major expense for some low income families as well. And so they have to spend money that they much needed money or they have to walk a very long way to get firewood so that's the backstory and here is the idea and so we clear this devil of a weed from the river <laughs> we dry it out we make it into fuel briquettes and we supply the surrounding communities with very cheap and accessible fuel for cooking a simple sort of concept but we in doing so we dramatically improve the river ecosystem by clearing it out we also remove the need to clear forests and trees for charcoal and firewood so, um, so we allow that forest and the the animals that are supported by the ecosystem to recover and protect the rainforest that they really rely on and uh, water hyacinth it's a never-ending resource because it so relentlessly grows back if we successfully get on top of the invasion even if we clear it completely new stuff drifts down each day from lake victoria ending up in a a few places that are especially prone to sort of collecting floating debris on the river you have these collection eddies so it's still a sustainable never-ending supply it can provide long-term employment for whoever's involved, which is desperately needed in these low-income societies. And every pod that we pull out of the river would have eventually rotted underwater anaerobically, 
pulling oxygen from the water, killing fish and sending methane up into the atmosphere. And so instead, if you burn it aerobically, it releases CO2 and prevents an equivalent amount of charcoal or wood from being unsustainably taken from the remaining land-based ecosystems. Now, double this up with our immediate current corona predicament, (laughs) running big team of staff and you know many of which are river professionals i run a company called kayak the nile and and another company called nile stand up paddleboard and i manage the national team for um performance kayaking so um uganda national team so a lot of these guys they live along the nile river and all being paid to sit on their their houses right now they're paying my my team still and they're going stir crazy they've been sat at home for weeks now i'm getting them to go out and paying them to go out on the river and clear out the hyacinths not putting themselves at corona exposure because it's a huge river and they, they're spread out and we, we can't run tourism activities right now we can't teach people to kayak but we can sure as hell use that staff time to clear up our natural environment <laughs> you know how much better would it be if, in the world if all companies who can't safely do their operations use their workforce to clean up their surrounding environment in some way <laughs> now there's an idea and using their reserves, obviously, that they've been carefully saving during years of growth instead of uh, paying out their CEOs and their shareholders. <laughs> you know, anyway, <laughs> I'm going to stay off that rant because I've been there in previous episodes. A partner of ours, Nile River Explorers, uh, is closed right now, but has a deserted campsite and has graciously let them use their entire sort of big car park and campground areas, a drying area. So we're gradually turning their entire camp into a green carpet of hyacinth (laughs) and for them also when the camp does eventually open up again it'll be a healthy river environment right in front of their camp that entire eddy that was in front of them and the surrounding eddies they're now all clear you know and we're working our way around the river to to get them to get it all cleared up sort of bemusement of my newer staff and kind of with a chuckle of familiarity with (laughs) from the older ones I've been roping into my environmental schemes for years. They've launched themselves at it with, you know, real enthusiasm and credit to them. It's been great. And, you know, I've actually, I've actually never been thanked so much for asking people to do physical labor. <laughs> you know, they're just, it, it, it's amazing. They're so appreciative of, of the work right now. And sadly, there's, they're some of the only people in the whole area that are still getting paid. And so everyone's struggling. So I said just now I roped in many of the Uganda national team who I managed to. They're all out of work, you know, paying them to hold them all this stuff out of the water too. And actually, if I, as soon as I can get this thing working properly on scale, I can, I can also take, take up some of the slack from the companies that are, that are not able to pay their staff right now. So jumping back a bit actually about the staff, it's actually fun watching change happen over time within the staff team many of them are getting much more uh, climate and environment aware you know turning into their own mini like impassioned environmentalists <laughs> they're always like telling me about their little mini endeavors in their communities and and their families and stuff and that really, that makes me really happy it's quite cool to see so you know bringing them along uh, as part of you know my projects but then they they as they're learning they're really becoming you know really receptive climate advocates so that's really exciting for me i should also mention where this idea originated i was on the river kayaking with jenny farmer general awesome human being <laughs> um and we're trying to get off the river on the Nile River and they, we're trying to bash our way through this thick mat of hyacinths, this huge eddy where, where we uh, try and get off the river after kayaking and um, we were talking about hyacinths and it came up in the conversation how much of a problem it is and how invasive and all the things it does 
And um, she mentioned she'd come across this this idea to make some kind of fuel out of it, put it to use somehow and try and generate a bit of income and, for communities, which I thought was pretty cool. And I, and I clocked it at the time and I wrote it on a list, but, you know, I just didn't have the time or space. And so it just goes to show it's really um, something I'm conscious of, but don't work hard enough at. Time is a very limited resource and I need that space even though I don't know what's coming next, I need to open up enough space that a new thing has the opportunity to appear. This idea came to me a couple of years ago. I could have been working on it for years. But at the time, I'm too busy doing this. Now, coronavirus has come about. It's closed down all my businesses. Various other projects are on massive slowdown. And all of a sudden, I've got all this time and space. And, and this idea just pops up. So it's, it's a funny old thing and, and, and a good life lesson to learn. Is like you kind of got to have a bit of space to have the opportunity to move on to a new project anyway side note but yeah all things originate with total legend uh, jenny farmer by the way she talks on the podcast about other projects we all need a bit more jenny farmer wisdom in our life <laughs> so I'll go back a few weeks then to this project prior to getting an extended team going on the river um, clean up thing that I've got going. I'm at home. I'm in this lockdown. What's essentially a two room house? You know, it's lovely. It's a bedroom and a big everything else that a house does room. But I've got a toddler here. Undoubtedly brings many moments of joy, but it has to be said is not very helpful <laughs> for productivity. And don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining. It's a nice place to live. And when you get out into nature, the river, the trees, the big area, I'm very privileged and grateful with the setup that I've landed in. But still, housebound and well, you know, I'm going. A little bit stir crazy after after weeks and weeks and weeks of it, and this idea comes about. So I figured I'm I'm already going slightly loopy anyway. Why not go full math scientist on it? <laughs> so I'm on experiment number twenty one right now. I think I have in this like notebook of the different experiments I have running, and it you know it all takes a while, like a good few weeks. You got cleaning out of the river, drying it out, shredding it, mixing it, molding it, compressing it, sometimes part burning or drying the final briquettes you know it, it's, it takes a while and I'm, I'm not patient enough neither does it make sense to wait till one version to finish to start the next that take years so <laughs> so i have all these concurrent experiments at different stages on like oven trays and whatever else and <laughs> i've got weigh scales and all sorts of pots and pans and bu- buckets and tools and trays <laughs> drying on my front porch and my mother and law and my wife are like half laughing half exasperated at how an increasing proportion of the kitchen utensils <laughs> general household items are getting roped into one experiment or another it's all been taken in very good humor to be fair to them well or, you know, until i almost smoked my wife's amazing nutri bullet blender trying to make a fine hyacinth dust uh, line lines were drawn and boundaries were set and, and rightly so <laughs> Anyways, like all my favorite ideas, once I get moving with it, it just gets more exciting. <laughs> and I realize it's not just a little scheme to keep my little microcosm a bit healthier and to keep my staff busy in the short term. This has potential to be a lot more than that, you know. So if I step back a moment and consider this for a second, let's think bigger picture. If we can get a model for this working here, the Nile, it's over 4,000 miles long and the whole thing is played by Hyacinth. The whole thing, you know, Lake Victoria too. That's a shoreline of like four and a half thousand miles, I think it is. And millions of people, most of them are in similar situations to my immediate community. And some of it, especially when you get more towards the desert and the Sahara, even more 
pressured in terms of firewood and the rate of regrowth and forest degradation and whatever else. So if we can get a model that's functional, financially sustainable, or even better, profitable for the for these communities, it generates income for these low-income communities, tackles a major biodiversity issue, cuts methane emissions, particularly reduces deforestation, sustainable source of fuel. You know, this thing could be huge. It's a, you know, I really hope I can make it work. You know, I also looked at water hyacinth around the world, and it's pretty much all over, causing the same problems, particularly in warm, warm climates. Got to make this thing work. And then you also, if you look at, you know, cooking on fires generally um, as a source of a climate impact, in case that seems like kind of trivial and small scale, get this, drawdown.org, which is one of my favorite bits of research on climate change. It states that 3 billion people cook over fires or rudimentary stoves. 3 billion people. You know, that many people doing anything means serious impact. In one of their scenarios, they list clean cook stoves as the seventh biggest single solution to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Holy crap. Out of 100 top solutions, three times the impact of public transit, four times the impact of electric cars. This is a big deal. You know, and it, and it has huge public health co-benefits too. Like, You know, and the same bit of research says... 4.3 million people die prematurely each year, directly linked to burning and smoke in enclosed spaces. Consider this, a sustainable fuel source doubled up with fuel-efficient cook stoves. Simple structures, you know, they, they channel more heat onto the uh, stove. They're not fancy or expensive, um, but they cut down massively the amount of fuel you need to do any cook. They can cut down the fuel use by anything 50 to up to 95% the most uh, uh, refined ones. So you have real powerful potential to have positive impact on the climate here. So anyway... <laughs> I'm a bit ahead of myself. So back to my immediate area, you know, long time listeners will know on an earlier episode, I was involved in a, rescuing a whole range of wildlife as the floodwaters rose on the mega dam, um, Isimba Dam, as it flooded my home there. You know, actually listeners were also involved because they were, you know, they contribute a significant portion of the funds to, to be able to do that relocation and the regeneration projects later. But anyway, the most unique wildlife there that we were caught and relocated and, and set free in, in different habitat were the pangolins. And they're the most trafficked animal in the world and under serious pressure, you know, heavy decline from poaching and their habitat's collapsing and they're clinging onto fast depleting rainforest areas in, you know, in the area. They're still here, but they're under real threat. And it's all to do with their combination of habitat loss and poaching. And the double whammy is just brutal. Um, and there are a bunch of other species also listed as vulnerable too on the IUCN red list that directly use this area. Mammals, birds, fish, uh, amphibians, I probably shouldn't get into all the details, but there aren't that many rivers the size of the Nile with rainforests adjacent to it. It's quite a special habitat, and so it badly needs that protection. You know, so we need to slow that destruction of the habitat, and we need to slow that down now. You know, Coronavirus has put all sorts of people in more desperate situations, and people's income have collapsed overnight, and they're turning to the only things they can, just like we all are, You know, looking for our options that are immediately available to us. And depleting natural resources around them is, is sadly, is one of them. You know, Poaching a sword, charcoal production, tree chopping, and you know, in the aquatic ecosystems, overfishing, sandmite, even dynamite fishing, like throwing explosives into the river, killing everything. You know? And so... People have very little choice and it's devastating. But like I said earlier, it's understandable given the situation. But we need action. We need tangible income alternatives. 
both for the sake of the humans and the struggling wildlife, and particularly those vulnerable species. And we need it soon. It's game time. <laughs> you know, make a break for these species and, and for the people. And I, and I feel like that urgency now. And, I, and so I'm hustling. I'm hustling hard to get this thing going. And I'm kind of like putting my own money ahead of it just to try and get people working, even though I haven't got security or firm knowledge that there's going to be a sustainable financial model in this. <laughs> got people collecting anyway. But you know what? Oh my, does it feel better to be active too, you know, digging into a project, getting going and the, the psychology of it all, you know, really to be working on something has, that has a potential for big positive impact. You know, all the talk, the fear to do with climate change and, and the double up with Corona at the moment, but there's this sort of like focus on personal sacrifice. It's so easy to feel gloomy and switch off. We need to remember that also that that narrative of personal sacrifice has been crafted like that on purpose. Fossil fuel industry spent hundreds of millions of dollars to make climate action about personal sacrifice. Knowing full well that that would just disengage most people and most people are just going to switch off. Mentally, I mean, not, you know, <laughs> not the lights. <laughs> um, I'm, going, I'm going a bit off track here, but... It's important for me, at least, you know, this this whole concept of like having something to get my teeth stuck into, just feeling better, <laughs> better for my well-being, you know. And climate action, it kind of looks different for every person, right? And we each have our own skill set and our own things to bring to the table. And climate change has got no golden bullet one solution. An ideal climate action um, would be an overhaul of everything, all sectors and industries and all societies and all countries you know we don't actually need everything um we need a significant portion of it <laughs> but we don't actually need everything to be perfect we just need a massive portion of that to to make a transition and so that's overwhelming because it's such a broad big task but it's also very empowering too so positive climate action work is readily available to everyone whatever my skill set is wherever i work or study you know whatever the organizations industries hobbies i'm involved with wherever i live you know, whoever I associate with, you, you know, what my circle of influence is, there's work right in front of me that matters. That slice of society can have a positive impact on climate on whatever scale they're operating at, a bit small or large. But critically, it can be a part of the drive for a larger societal impact that will give us the biggest changes. If we only focus on big government level you know, societal change, we feel really disempowered because like, we can't actually directly control that ourselves. We can try and, and contribute, but it is quite disempowering, you know. And if we only focus on personal sacrifice and individual action to reduce our own footprint, it's even worse. You know, that's a really negative way of coming at it. Not that it's not a part of the solution, but it's just a really negative framing. But if we focus on the work that's in front of us that matches our skills and where we have access to people and influence, we drive action. But that also contributes to being part of a bigger movement to inspire mass societal change. It's not one or the other. It's like, get the work done in front of you. That helps pull us all in the right direction. <laughs> and every day, more people are on board working towards that change. You know, you're not alone and neither am I. And it's, and it's not going to be easy. <laughs> it's not going to be quick, but, uh, you know, but I'm fueled here uh, when I'm in this project and, you know, doing something like this. I'm fueled by a sense of purpose that this is a battle that's going to define my lifetime and define this entire period of human history. I'm a part of something big and, and a part of something where, you know, so much is at stake. So, 
Let's get to work. Let's get to work, people. A little deviation escalated quickly. And by the way, when I say let's get to work, I might be a bit insensitive phrase right now, <laughs> given we're in the middle of Corona. I'm not talking to frontline workers who are working their asses off right now and have their own very real and important sense of purpose right now as well. So I salute and respect that. You know, keep doing it. You're amazing. And thank you, by the way. <laughs> and I'm certainly not um, getting get back to work like I'm one of Trump's rallies. Let's get the poor people back to the factories so that the rich people can stay at home working remotely and make money again. <laughs> I'm talking about getting going on the work of changing our societies to be a more climate friendly in however way that's possible right now. Let's get our teeth into it. Let's get going. There are lots of options and lots of things I'm exploring. And I'm obviously reading online as well. You know, there's tons of resources and other examples of people making briquettes um, trawling through academic papers. I'm learning fast. A few papers in Nigeria that had worked on making hyacinth briquettes and, and someone in Kenya as well. So I don't see them doing it, but the preliminary study both came back saying it's a functional, possible plan. So it needs to happen. <laughs> you know, there's all sorts of things on the table. Even medium-sized production is not out of the question. There's, the, there's three major hydro projects in my immediate area, and just one of them, get this, it holds an average of 44 tonnes of hyacinth out of the water each day just as a standard day not when there's a big island floating into it just as a standard day it drifts down into the dam they've got guys permanently employed to pull it out the river it's crazy you know and at the moment it just gets dumped and some use for like fertilizer it's dumped in a big dump site and <laughs> the guy in charge said you can just have as much as you want for free if you just come and pick it up <laughs> so there's lots of options also things like using the weed for biogas or carbon finances to help balance the finances maybe or complementing with fuel efficient cook stoves i already mentioned Lots of things that I'm looking into, but I'm not at a full rollout stage yet. I'm learning and learning fast and experimenting. And I'd love it actually to be also a two-way conversation. So if someone listening has, knows about this, something to do with this, or is interested in getting involved in the project, helping scale it, or or has some like research or information that I you think might really benefit this, that's part of the reason for doing this episode now. So get in touch you can get in touch with me at sam at climatechangeunfolding.com and just email me um, i'm also going to be putting some updates on the climate change unfolding newsletter and um, so if you want to get occasional updates i'm, I'm pretty irregular with it <laughs> but how it's all playing out and i'll send some pictures as well and um, it's super easy to sign up just type your email in on climatechangeunfolding.com there's a newsletter sign up really obvious and easy you also get some intermittent updates on recovering natural habitat from previous conservation initiative we got going with the climate change unfolding podcast trees and bees so let me leave it there i'm excited to try and make this project work and be a part of a bigger picture change that needs to happen and i'm feeling good about like working on things you know let's get to work <laughs> this is sam ward on climate change unfolding i'll see you next time <laughs>